Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. When Anella Malik posted an honest, fair, and nuanced review of a local restaurant that departed a little bit from the narrative repeated in most outlets, I thought, I want to hear more from this woman. Anella makes that easy by sharing freely about her sourdough baking, her workout regimens, bright red wedding dress, cats, and her takes on how to support marginalized populations when we go out to eat. I was fascinated by her tagline, food is political, because frankly, I wasn't even sure what that meant. So I reached out to hear from Anella all about her father, a resourceful and talented cook, cooking competitions with her siblings, her experiences living as an expat in the Middle East that were the catalyst to starting her blog, and her maximalist but simple approach to cooking. And of course, we discussed this intriguing statement, food is political. Thrilled to welcome Anella to the show today. <laughs> Good afternoon. How are you? I'm good. It is a crazy, crazy time, that's for sure. It is. It is. In the meantime, there are some highlights, such as the <laughs> delicious, rich, flavorful mushroom toast I just enjoyed for lunch. <laughs> so thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. That was the most difficult part of this whole experience. I was like, I have to come up with a recipe. I don't, I have cookbooks. Right. And I use them yes, for yes. ideas, but we don't use recipes at home almost ever. I know. <laughs> it was quite the experience, like figuring out. I was like, I think I just have to keep making this thing over and over so I can yeah. get an idea of how much, you know, salt, pepper, milk, whatever I put in it, because I don't measure ever. I relate all the time. People will come over for dinner and be like, oh, can I have this recipe? And I'm like, well, it's not that I'm not willing. <laughs> it's just that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> when people on my blog will send me DMs all the time if I cook something in my stories and they'll mm -hmm. ask me, you know, for a recipe and I'll say, well, you know, the visual story is the recipe because I didn't measure or write anything down. So. Yeah, I completely relate, but I knew exactly where you were going with this mushroom toast. And I was like, oh, that sounds amazing. And I mean, I'm a garlic lover, so I went mm -hmm. a little heavier on that. It was absolutely delicious. It was perfect. So thanks for that. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. So let's dive into some of these questions. So, um, Okay. When I, yeah, when I first found you and found your account, I you immediately stood out to me as not another food blogger. You love food, mm -hmm. but there was a passion behind you that was in addition to your love for food. And I guess the closest word that I can think of for that is that you're an advocate. Um, you're an advocate for others. I want to say almost first and foremost, and then food is your vehicle for advocacy. What do you think of that analysis? <laughs> am I right or am I wrong? <laughs> I actually think it's perfect. And it's mm -hmm. um, ironically, I've really struggled to kind of encapsulate what I do when I tell other people, mm -hmm. because people mm -hmm. will always say, oh, and Anella has a food blog. And I'm like, well... It's not just a mm -hmm. food blog and the point is not really the food. And so I think actually you've probably said it better than I could have. I do really try to focus on advocacy um, mm -hmm. and politics. And 
I kind of fell into this. It's just grew out of my own like love and passion for food, but also for storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I found in my life that like the best, most memorable kind of experiences and stories that I've, you know, encountered have been either through food or over mm-hmm. food. And so it's really a vehicle to try to sh- tell stories that I think are less often told, mm-hmm. um, particularly in the food blogging arena. So stories mm-hmm. about minorities, marginalized people in general, and also about like new cultures, um, because I think, you know, mm. food is a way that we share parts of our history or parts of our culture with others. And often mm. I feel like that aspect is lost with food bloggers in general. And mm. so I want to show that diversity of like influences and creators and entrepreneurs that exist in this really, really, you know, dynamic, diverse arena, mm. but through food. Yes. I really appreciate what you're doing. And I have a follow-up question already before we move on to the next one, which is, did you say that you're focusing on new cultures, like new cultures are being created kind of through mashups and stuff? Is that what you were saying? So what I meant by that was Mm -hmm. showing other people new cultures through food. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. because food for me, and I I do travel a lot in my my personal and professional life. So um, food for me is a way to tell a story about maybe people that I know my followers haven't really encountered before in mm-hmm. real life or don't know very much about or, you know, part of history they don't know very much about. But then what your question also, you know, suggests something that I think is very true, especially in a really dynamic market like DC right now, there is mm-hmm. kind of new cultures being created through food. And this is also happening, you know, in New York and in LA where you have, you know, mashups of Indian food with French influence yeah. um, and, you know, maybe French techniques, but spice profiles and ingredients that are from um, an entirely different culture mm-hmm. uh, to create like, very, very interesting, dynamic dishes that you would not find anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. And this happens on the micro level again and again, every time you have two different cultures come together into a family. Mm -hmm, That's true. You really have a new culture created, especially a new food culture created, um, which is super exciting. It's always amazing to me that there will always be a new dish to create, which is mind boggling, but so exciting. Uh, I mean, I think that's part of the reason why I fell in love with food in the first place, because mm. like I'm an avid learner. I love to read and mm-hmm. I, you know, I've studied languages for a long time. Mm. And for me, food is like this vast arena in which like I'll never be able to learn everything because yeah. there's always <laughs> something new. And, yeah. and so it's it's like it's interesting and challenging in that way. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you say, I think the tagline for your for your business is you say food is political. So break that down for me and my listeners. What does political mean in this context and how is food political? Okay, so I studied uh, political science in college. Oh, okay, yeah. And so I will I will try to um to make this as simple as possible. Yeah, you'll try to distill it. <laughs> I'll try to distill it because for me, I'm like, oh, this, this could be a thesis, right? Yes. Um, but politics is essentially a series of arguments. And then hopefully we get to eventual agreement, but a series of arguments about the way we live. 
So about, um, you know, the norms that we've decided as a society are acceptable about the, the system of governance that we want, right? This is the process of politics. And so when I think about food, I think about it as being inseparable from this process in that the way that we assign value to food, mm-hmm. um, the way that we talk about food and the the foods that we decide are worth spending money on even, mm. like all of that is a political process and it's informed by everything that's happening around us. Um, and so I wanted to write about food and show people food but not remove like an explicit discussion of that, you know, political process from, mm-hmm. um, from my work. And mm-hmm. like some of the best examples I think about that I try to tell people when they ask, what does that mean? Is like, if you think about the process of selecting what food shot, what food video, what food photo is quote unquote good enough, um, mm-hmm. to go on Instagram for a blogger. That process is political and it totally depends on what your purpose is, right? Mm. You might just want, you know, clickbait. There's something called a cheese pull, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is I don't when. Know what you, that is. Okay, so it's when you get something that has cheese in it that's melted and then you oh, break it open so yeah. you can see the, the yeah. uh, strings, right? right. Grilled cheese a sandwich. Cheese yes, got it. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that's a cheese pull. And that's really popular in that yes. it's going to get a lot of, of likes um, and maybe like quite a few shares because it's, uh, I mean, it's what we call in the food blogging industry, it's food porn. <laughs> so that's, you know, if that's your selection criteria, great. But is curry, um, which is like I find to be various types of curries, so comforting and so complex if you think about the number of spices and ingredients that go into them. But maybe curry doesn't photograph as well, or maybe it's just not as trendy. So you might decide, depending on what the purpose of your account is, that you're not going to post those photos of the curry, Um, which means you're not going to highlight that, um, Mm -hmm. you know, Indian, Pakistani, maybe Bangladeshi owned restaurant. Um, And so that process, like in and of itself, just of selecting what goes on a page, that's political. A hundred percent. Absolutely. And yeah. You said you you had two. Did you have another one you wanted to share? Yeah. So another example that I always share um, about how food is political is, and I still see this to this day, and it drives me crazy, but mm-hmm. I fully understand that even I, you know, who admittedly read a lot about this and thought a lot about this, I also mm-hmm. carry these same kind of ingrained biases within me. So this is not, you know, um, uh, like a, a thing in which I could single someone out, but If you go on Yelp or on Google and you read reviews, um, there are certain ethnic foods which generally in Western culture have low price ceilings. Yeah. Um, And I'll read reviews that say verbatim that this Mexican restaurant was fabulous, but it's too expensive for Mexican food. Mm. And my question would be, why is Mexican food worth less than French or Italian food which we've considered for a long time to be kind of highbrow cuisine that's worth Mm. fine dining prices. It's just, I would say that like we're informed by our own thoughts about, oh, well, Mexican food's usually pretty casual Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's just beans and rice when if you think about what really goes into, God, the insane amounts of labor Mm -hmm. (laughs) that go into so many different types of ethnic foods, 
then yes. um, I would say that they all likely deserve much higher price ceilings than we yeah. assign them. Mm. Very interesting. Yeah, that is such a great point. It's not one I thought about. So thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I think restaurants that tend to have been started by, really, by immigrants, mm-hmm. right? Because my husband's father is a immigrant. He's a Palestinian immigrant. One aunt in particular sold food. And I'm trying to think about what her thought process was when she priced it. I don't mm-hmm. know. I'd have to ask her. And as someone who loves Palestinian food and has eaten her Mm -hmm. body weight in Palestinian food (laughs) and has made lots of Palestinian food, I can tell you that that, like some of these very traditional Palestinian dishes take way more work. Oh, gosh. Yes. Even (laughs) something as simple as tabula. I know. Yeah. Like so just hours and hours of manual labor. Um, And the food is incredible, but that's an amount of labor that I would never put into my home cooking. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, one thing I think about that is I think that other cultures have remained communal far longer than American culture has. And because of that, there are a lot of time intensive dishes. Like, I don't know the number of things I've done that have been individually made like pierogies, you know? Mm. And the thing is you would come together as a community and everybody would do their little part on this. Well, you yeah. can make a bazillion falafel when you're spending the afternoon in the room together, but that's, that's not feasible for a meal that you're trying to throw together, you know? And I think that's part of the reason that some of these ethnic foods are more time consuming. It's just because cooking was a communal activity for far longer. That's a good and, point. I've never thought about it that way, but I mean, it, it makes total sense. And I've, I've had that experience living abroad where, you know, we've had these six, seven course meals. But then when I, yeah, when I think about it, I'm like, there was probably eight or nine people hanging out in the kitchen all day working on that together. Yeah. So I want to back way up now and talk about, um, how you've, how you've gotten to this point. So I know that there must've at some point been two separate tracks, like your, your food track, you know, with your family (laughs) and then your advocacy politics track. And at some point the two merge. So, well, I'm just going to start asking questions and we'll see where the two come together. So, okay. So first of all, just tell me a little bit about where you grew up, your family of origin, and especially, you know, as it relates to food. It sounds like you come from a food loving and appreciating family. That's, I mean, I think a little bit of an understatement. (laughs) (laughs) I'm originally from Hawaii. And then when I was young, we moved to Vermont. But like uh, my strongest childhood memories, I would say, always involve food. Mm-hmm. And they were always involved me in the kitchen with my brother and my sisters, my parents. And um, <laughs> when we were little, my parents would let us have these cooking contests, right? Oh. And so we, we didn't have a lot of money, but my parents would let all of us pick one recipe and they would buy all the ingredients And all of us kids each would make our own dish. And then we would all win because my mom is way too nice to select one person to be the winner. And I was the youngest. Would she give you um, like strong feedback or was it just everything was delicious no matter what? Everything was delicious. (laughs) But, you know, I and I was the youngest. So like often I would just make cinnamon sugar toast (laughs) because I couldn't make anything else. But that really like 
I think crystallizes kind of my childhood relationship with food and, and how I've always thought of like food being connected to family. Mm. Um, and my, my parents are, are great cooks, my dad, especially, and his style was very much like, you know, you see what you have in the pantry or we did have a really big garden when I was a kid or mm. fresh in the garden. And then you just now, kind when of you like say you were throw it all together. Yeah, yeah, I, which is ideal. When you say you were a kid, how old were you when you moved to Vermont? Um, I think I was five or six, five so or I was six, pretty young. Okay. And then we lived there, like, through elementary school for me. Okay. And so my first memories in the kitchen are in that kitchen in Vermont, and that okay. was also where we had the garden, right? So we had okay. a big garden, and it... It's funny when you're a kid, you do not want to go pick weeds, right? No, no. <laughs> you don't want to go pull weeds. And it's so frustrating and annoying. But now that I'm older, and uh, especially now, you know, I'm, I'm inside a lot because of social distancing. I'm like, I would love to have a garden to oh. just spend some time in, to mm. go get some fresh herbs, um, mm-hmm. you know, pick some like fresh greens. But when you're a kid, you don't, I really didn't appreciate no. it. You don't. You don't. I don't think something awakens until you're an adult. You know, there is something deeply, deeply primal about our fear of not having enough food. And I think that gardening addresses that Mm -hmm. primal fear. Almost nothing that's so satisfying, I think, you know, maybe. Very, very true. So now tell me about your, you're a black American, correct? Mm -hmm. No. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Like you're not of Hawaiian origin or are you? No, no, I'm not a point origin. And my family's not military. I would say my parents are, how would I describe them? Mm. Old school hippies. (laughs) They're nomads. (laughs) Yeah, kind of. And um, very frankly, like my dad had quite a few health issues. And so my dad had severe, severe asthma. And so we ended up leaving Hawaii because there's volcanic smog. Um, and he had a really bad reaction. And we moved to Vermont because Vermont has some of the cleanest air in America. Mm-hmm. That's um, interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's also really interesting because my dad had really severe allergies and food allergies. And so there were things when I was a kid that he couldn't eat. And I, I, I remember more when I was in high school. Like there, <laughs> there were always, my dad would always want to buy me a treat. And I realized oh. as I got older that the treat wasn't actually because I wanted a treat. It was because it was something he couldn't eat. And he, and he would just sit there and be like, you know, like kind of like watching you eat the ice cream because you're, you're trying not to have ice cream. He was living vicariously through you. A hundred percent through food. Like he would drive me to school and be like, you want to stop for a breakfast sandwich? Dad, you can't eat that. (laughs) Oh, but yeah, that was his way of like living vicariously through me, but also it's just he always showed affection through food. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I associate that like food is love in our house. And we're, you know, if you come over, like we're, we have to feed you. That's just mm-hmm. a requirement. Mm-hmm. That's really neat. Oh, your dad sounds so sweet. Yeah, he's a softie. Oh, and your mom too. Yeah. <laughs> Two yeah. softies. <laughs> now, what about, um, so those two influences, so influences of Hawaiian cooking has a lot of Japanese influences, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know how to cook any like Japanese food really. Um, okay. my, so my mom is Japanese American, but okay. she actually grew up in Europe. Oh, okay. Um, and so you know, in some ways, like we've always in our house had, um, (laughs) my mom loves a good bowl 
of just like very high quality white rice. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, That's, just oh, like, white rice is an art form to her, huh? Yeah, just like very good, especially like the sticky rice. Yeah. Um, and so we've always had elements like that or like use, I grew up eating furikake as just like a seasoning that you just put on things. Um, but she didn't make very much Asian or Japanese food. Um, my parents cooking and our cooking, I mean, my cooking to this day is kind of like American global fusion. Like we'll make yeah. a curry, we'll make a gumbo and yeah. then there'll be, you know, some like Mediterranean food. And, and really we just kind of go based on either what we know how to make or I am the queen of Googling, you know, how mm. do I use this random odd thing that I have left in the fridge? And mm-hmm. there. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, well, now's a good time then maybe to talk about this mushroom toast recipe that you gave me, <laughs> which yeah. is like, I just want to say it's like so much more than a toast. You know, the toast is almost incidental compared yeah. to the, this gravy and mushroom and herb and toppings you know that you have. And so you said, I loved this. This made me laugh out loud. You said that you associate this recipe with your childhood, even though it's not from your childhood. So tell me a little bit more on that. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially my dad is a really or was a very creative cook. Mm-hmm. And so as a kid, like we never wasted food. We ate kind of based off of what was fresh, what was from the garden. And generally, my food values are still aligned with that, right? Like good food doesn't have to be fussy. Use what you mm-hmm. have. Eat what you have. See what you can make out of it. Um, so I made this recipe up for this podcast because I never cook with recipes. Mm-hmm. But it- does remind me of so many things that I've eaten over the years. Um, and it is something that I do make a variation of this. I have some type of toast almost every day. Really? For breakfast. Mm. Um, I'm a sourdough baker and we always have fresh sourdough. And so I use the toast as like a way to kind of clean up (laughs) the fridge. Yes. (laughs) If I have three strawberries left, I'm going to, you know, cut up the three strawberries probably with nut butter and like cinnamon and salt and, and use it that way. Or mm-hmm. I will make a mushroom toast and I love mushrooms. I think they're so rich. Mm-hmm. Um, and so making anything like I will, I will saute some mushrooms to put on many, many a dish. And I, I just wanted something when I had to <laughs> create a recipe for the podcast, <laughs> I wanted something comforting. Yes. Something that feels hearty and yes. like feels really rich, but isn't comp- isn't super complicated. Yeah. Uh, mm, and I love that. Um, well, first of all, did you say that you would put salt with your cinnamon and nut butter and strawberries? Did I hear that right? Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you always put a little salt on just to bring out flavors? Um, usually. And it's funny, even on sweet things, sometimes mm-hmm. I'll taste it. And if it just seems like it's mm-hmm. usually any dish, if it's lacking something, try a, either a little acid or a little salt and you're mm-hmm. probably there. Mm-hmm. I think that is such a key key tip. And I'm so glad you said that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if you were going to add an acid, what would you put in? I actually would do, if I was making a toast, because I don't mm-hmm. want it to get soggy, I would probably do lemon zest or mm-hmm. lime zest. Because mm-hmm. um, you get like the hint of what could be, you know, an, a more acidic flavor, but without making making the toast itself soggy. Mm-hmm. That's an awesome tip. 
awesome tip. So thanks. <laughs> That's true. good. <laughs> thanks for sharing that. So I also love, I love, love, love that you called yourself a maximalist. <laughs> Because minimal, I love it for two reasons. One, minimalism is the trend right now. And I love that you're bucking the trend. (laughs) And I also like it because I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about you can be a maximalist and still believe in simple cooking. You know, Mm -hmm. they're, they're not opposite. Can you talk a little bit about that, how the two go together? Yeah. So, I mean, with my recipe, but also in general, um, like at home where our grocery list is really simple. It's mm-hmm. basically like fresh herbs, fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, sometimes some, you know, meats, but we actually, even though we both eat meat, we don't cook it very much at home. We tend to eat mostly vegetarian. So our food is very simple. Some people, I guess, would say that it's very clean, but that does not mean that it like in any way lacks flavor. Right. And what I really enjoy doing is taking something simple like a toast or even, you know, an egg scramble and like really bumping it up with just the addition of fresh either herbs, layering spices. And I I did put in my recipe on this toast. I'll take a toast and I'll, you know, make a mushroom gravy. But then I'm going to sprinkle on hemp seeds. Yeah. (laughs) I'm probably going to sprinkle on toasted salted pumpkin seeds. I'm probably going to put hot sauce. I'm probably also going to put some fresh pepper. And then I'm probably also going to put some freshly shaved Parmesan. And then, you know, it's still only to assemble 10, 15 minutes. It's super quick. But it is, you know, an explosion of flavors. Yes. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of how I approach cooking at home. Mm -hmm. I want simple food because I do eat out a lot for the blog. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, restaurant food tends to be really rich and yes. Mm -hmm. And when I'm at home, I want, you know, vegetables and I want curry and I want, but I I still don't want to skimp on flavor or texture. Like I want it to, to be a complex dish, but maybe, you know, just something that's a little lighter and a little easier for my body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I have wondered that. And I think because your social media focuses mostly on what you eat out, Mm -hmm. I'm really glad that you're bringing this to the forefront and showing that you can eat out and still be mindful of your own health. Because I've actually wondered, (laughs) how does she eat fried chicken all day? (laughs) I still say so. So fit looking. (laughs) And you don't eat fried chicken all day. You don't. You know, what you see, and I always, you know, I always have to remind myself of this as well. What you see on social media is a curated look, right? Um, And so I blog about a lot about fried chicken because I love fried chicken. And I also think fried chicken is so symbolic of of so many aspects of like America's food scene and America's food history. Um, but a lot of times I'll go out and I'll taste fried chicken and I will bring the leftovers home to my husband (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I can't eat fried chicken every day. So I just think I would feel sick of it after a while. And I, I don't want to get tired of this thing that I love. I want to be able to try it again someday. So I have to, I have to be mindful of that. And I think people assume if you're a food blogger that you either throw away a lot of food or that you somehow just have four stomachs. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I really, really love that you highlighted this because I think that is important to see that you can do both. Mm-hmm. You can enjoy something decadent and still be mindful of your health. Absolutely. Um, I just think it's wonderful that you highlighted that. I mean, I, I especially because I you know, I'm doing market research. So I'm following and looking at other people's food content. And Mm -hmm. I find that oftentimes it's one or the other. It's the like triple fried, you know, Mm -hmm. chicken thing that has cheese on it and gravy, or it's only super quote unquote clean Mm -hmm. recipes. And, and I, you know, the middle ground is like, is I think where most of us live actually (laughs) somewhere in between the two. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's really important to show people that our relationship with food can be varied. It's going to change over time, but um, it doesn't have to be just one or the other. Agree a hundred percent. You said that you eat a lot of fried chicken because you think it's a really a symbolic part of American food history. So tell me a little bit about that. I'm black. I'm a black Mm -hmm. American and Mm -hmm. American food is a really amorphous kind of idea (laughs) because we draw on so many other Mm -hmm. cultures and cultural influences for the creation of American food. And fried Mm -hmm. chicken is something that has like now is just internationally a phenomena. Um, Mm. Last year, you had major fast food companies like basically waging PR wars over who had the best fried chicken sandwich. Mm. Um, And that's actually when I really started thinking more deeply about like fried chicken and what does it mean? Mm -hmm. And for Mm -hmm. me as an African-American, I mean, fried chicken, as we eat it today, as we consume it today, as the symbol of like American food was created by, you know, slave cooks in the slaveholding South. Mm-hmm. Um, and then was exported when those formerly enslaved folks either were freed and traveled to the north or yeah. was exported through their work, working for well, you know, well to do wealthy families yeah. cooking for their dinner parties. Mm-hmm. And so this dish has such humble beginnings, right? Mm-hmm. And such complicated beginnings, which is the mm-hmm. story of America. And mm-hmm. now is an international phenomena. That mm. like Popeyes and you know Chick Fil A are are spending tens of thousands <laughs> of dollars over who has the best version, um, mm. and so I think it's really kind of emblematic of America's very complicated, very diverse food history, mm-hmm. um, and also to me is like such a simple food still, right? It's mm-hmm. chicken that's battered yep. mm-hmm. with some spices and put in hot oil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. All great points. So I do think that leads me into, like I said, I wanted to kind of go up these parallel tracks. So we talked Mm -hmm. about your food history. Now I'd like to talk about when food became a vehicle for advocacy. So did that come from early experiences as a black child? Did that even come from your experiences as a African American? Or did it come from a different place later? So this is a kind of a difficult question because mm. I don't, I, I can't pinpoint where it came from. Mm-hmm. Um, my father especially was very political, um, mm. was very radical, radical for his time in that mm-hmm. he was a big proponent just of equality in general mm-hmm. and was very well read and would make a point, mm-hmm. you know, if I was doing a school project to inject a few tidbits about, well, you know, there was this Native American or this 
you know, African-American or this mm. female leader who did X, Y, Z, because he wanted me to have this very diverse perspective. So that was kind of the environment I grew up in where, yeah. those, you know, hearing those stories was just normal. And then I studied politics in college. I studied <laughs> political science. Mm-hmm. And I, I also studied politics for my graduate degree as well. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, but I never connected it to food through college and grad school. I just worked in restaurants to help pay the bills. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a server. I was a busser. You know, I didn't think about food as being this political vehicle. Interesting. Uh, until later, until I mm. started my blog and I didn't start it with the intention of being so explicitly uh, political, but mm. it kind of became that way. And I think that's mm. just, you know, that's my personal perspective you yeah. know, that lens that I bring from my education, from my childhood, and also because of the particular circumstances around, you know, where I was when my blog was founded I was living in Jordan. So I, I do speak Arabic. I studied Arabic. My husband wow. speaks Arabic. Wow. And we were really trying to get out of the expat bubble where we only hang out with other Americans and you only speak English all day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I started my blog as an experiment, as a way to try to challenge myself to find new places, to meet new people, mm. and to try new foods and to just kind of like learn about this new home. Mm-hmm. And it was really fun. Immediately, I made a bunch of local friends who really welcomed me in and showed me around. Mm-hmm. But more than that, my you know first followers were people in America because I'm American. That's where I'm from. Those are my friends. Yeah. And they, through my blog, started to learn about the Middle East and Arab culture in a way that they never had before. And right. they would DM me questions or I had friends who admitted they would have never come to the Middle East, but then they saw, you know, this, like, how warm and welcoming people Mm. are and these Mm -hmm. amazing experiences I was having. So then they decided Mm. to come visit me. Wow. So my blog became a way to kind of show people back home a part of the world that we don't really hear about unless it's to hear about something bad happening on the news. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, that was not my experience living in the Middle East and having studied, I had also studied abroad there. People are people and <laughs> they're super welcoming and warm and, mm-hmm. you know, it is a much more communal culture and I, I quite enjoyed that. So I think maybe that's when my quote unquote awakening happened. And I realized that through focusing on food, you know, you could talk about so many other things and things that really yeah. resonate with people. Interesting. So in that particular circumstance, focusing on the marginalized really just meant actually focusing on the people of the culture, stepping out the out of the expat bubble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. showing people, you know, what Jordan was like, but also what Egypt was like. I took my mom mm-hmm. and my mother-in-law wow. <laughs> on a week-long trip through Egypt and wow. My friends back at home were amazed. They're like, you know, is it safe? Where could we go? What could we do? What should I expect? And all of those things are really pushing, for my friends and followers, was really pushing the boundaries of what they had come to, you know, imagine about that part of the world. Mm. Such a great, great mission you're on. Okay. So let's talk about, you brought up this idea of new cultures earlier mm-hmm. and I said it happens on a micro level. So tell me about you, you're, how long have you been married? Fairly recently, right? 
Yeah, so we got married in August of last year. So almost oh, a year. Congratulations. Thank you. And you're a multiracial couple. Yes. So my husband's Arab American and our food cultures are very different, but also very similar in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> he he cooks primarily Arab food, right? He'll make homemade hummus and he, he's Iraqi American. So he'll make Iraqi. Okay. Some amazing Iraqi dishes that you know, mm. I would never even be able to figure out because they take like seven hours and, mm. <laughs> and of, they, of, of like of simmering or of actual hands on labor of simmering. But, okay. you know, it's just like there's so many ingredients and and my approach to food is like very simple and straightforward. And um, you start and you're done and you eat. <laughs> yes, yes. And yeah. so that, that actually was an adjustment for us. Our food mm-hmm. cultures, like and our approach to meals is very different. I want to eat like soon. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and he's going to experiment and like, you know, taste and stir and taste and stir. And like dinner will be in a few hours. There's just certain things now that we've delegated to be his responsibility. So mm. fresh hummus, I can make amazing hummus, but it's not like his. I think just the sheer amount of time he's willing to spend fine tuning the yeah. last little mm. bits so that it's perfect. And also so that you get the like ultra light whipped texture yes. that that I don't even know how you do that with a home food processor and like without yeah. a commercial one, but he yeah. does it. And I think I just give up before it gets, you know, that's like, there's some things that I will never be able to match his lifelong experience tinkering with hummus. Right. But in my house, like I make gumbo. Mm-hmm. Um, and that for me is like very much the, the long contemplative process. Cause gumbo <laughs> is, is a lot of spices. You have to make a roux and then you really have to let the flavors develop and it's a little bit different every time. Because of the intensity of the vegetables or just because of the mood you're in? Both. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Now, when you were, okay, so he wasn't with you in Jordan. He was, he was. He was, okay. So how did, would you have been as quick to step outside the bubble if you didn't have by your side someone who was Middle Eastern by? Descent. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I would say absolutely yes, but that yeah. is because in our relationship, I'm an extreme extrovert <laughs> and he's introverted. But yeah. on top of that, in Jordan, I was really lucky to be in a place where I spoke the language and I had studied the Middle East politics and language and then just political science in general in undergrad and grad school. Mm-hmm. And so I was in a place where, you know, you get a comfort level having studied abroad throughout the region. I had lots of Arab friends. And fundamentally, Arabic is so difficult as a language, right? Yeah. I'm not I'm not fluent. Can read and write. I pride myself on the fact that now, after years and years and years, I'm just comfortable. Mm. <laughs> but having invested that much time and money into learning something mm. like nothing could have held me back when I was in Jordan from using it and mm. trying to use it as much as possible. This was my chance, you know? Mm. <laughs> yes. That's amazing. Good for you. Not everybody would have responded like that. I, all the respect in the world. I really admire that. It is very, very humbling. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, yeah. But it would be something that I'll probably be working on for the rest of my life. Mm. How about being a woman? What was that like? How did that affect your experience? 
So in many ways, I think in the Middle East, sometimes as a foreign woman, you get kind of a pass. Mm -hmm. I feel like people often just view you as like a third gender. You're neither male nor female because they are frankly just usually very understanding of the fact that you might not understand the cultural nuances of what's going on. Jordan doesn't really have very many restaurants where it's gender segregated. There's a few places where they'll have a family section, and that's usually where you would want to sit anyway. But overwhelmingly, it's mixed-gendered seating. But I would say, actually, that... uh, And maybe, you know, maybe this is me being not as progressive as I I claim to be. But sometimes in the Middle East, I enjoy the fact that as a woman, people are a little bit extra... I'm not going to say deferential, but helpful. Mm. And because as a foreigner, you're trying to navigate a space you don't understand. And no matter how much you think you understand it, it's still not your, it's not your home. It's not your space. But because of the gender dynamics, sometimes people would definitely just be more patient with me and, Mm. and offer to help me. And, and I don't know if I was a man traveling there, if they would have done that. And I was really thankful for it. I needed help. I, you know, sometimes I didn't know where I was going or I didn't know how this worked. You know, in that sense, sometimes it can be a benefit. And I do have to stress the fact that I never, ever, ever in Jordan ever felt threatened or unsafe because of the fact that I was a woman. It is really like a very safe society. There's very little street crime. Mm -hmm. And it actually moving back to D.C. where I live now, (laughs) it has been quite an adjustment because in D.C. I take public transit. And sometimes when I'm alone at night in the city here, I feel unsafe in a way that I never did when I lived in Jordan. All right. So let's go ahead and return to today and your mission. So as we think about this concept of supporting the marginalized through our approach to food, what advice or what resources would you recommend to us? So first and foremost, um, I would say that is just try to think about where your food comes from. And Mm. when you're shopping at the grocery store, if you have the privilege, if you have the money um, to spend a little bit more for something that's fair trade, I would say do it. um, Right. Mm. That's all that sticker means is that someone made an attempt to ensure that this food did not come from from exploitation. And I understand that, you know, these products are more expensive. And when, like, for example, when I was in college, I couldn't afford it. But now it's a choice that I'm happy to make, especially if you think about, I mean, if you've read or watched any of the documentaries about ingredients like chocolate and, you know, it's, it's actually avocados even are are often um, from very exploitative, you know, environments, that's, uh, that's like the very first thing we all can do, because we all have control over what we bring into our homes. I don't know if you got a chance to listen to it, but I had a children's book author, Liz Zunin, come on and talk about her book, Grandpa Cacao. She's a fabulous artist. It's a beautiful story, beautiful illustrations. And in our interview, she talked a lot about what it means to buy fair trade chocolate and what exactly they're doing to make it fair. It's super interesting. So for our listeners, I can commend that resource to anyone to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. And Mm -hmm. then on top of that, I would say to just kind of reconsider your own price ceilings and also Mm -hmm. to try new things, right? So if you always go to fine dining French or Italian food, try the fine dining Indian food restaurant in your city. And, you know, it, it might not be what you like, but 
I always, and I challenge myself to do this, always try something new. I went to an incredible Burmese restaurant in D.C., and I was blown away. And, you know, I'd never I'd never had Burmese food before, and I never really thought about what made up Burmese cuisine. And I, I had to ask a lot of questions, mm. and it was something I was totally uncomfortable with, but at the same time was such amazing experience that mm. I now like, oh, well, I have to go back <laughs> when mm-hmm. this is over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I would also say to people that I think, <laughs> I really do think that they should follow you and your feed and your blog, because there aren't a lot of people really talking about it this way. And you give us so many great resources of places we can go. Like I said, I mean, I'm saving things like crazy for date nights with my husband. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I also have to say that's the power of social media is yes. that it's, it's really democratized, you know, our public space in that mm-hmm. there was, um, I've read a, a few articles about this recently about how the fact that in D.C. there are no full-time food writers at any of the major papers that are people of color. Like, how does that impact the places that they select to review, you know, the types of cuisines that they engage in? It's all, you know, it's all very nebulous, but... I would say in general, just try to read and consume diverse voices in food. There's yeah. a lot of prominent women who were on this year's list of James Beard Award nominees who have a lot to say. And then there's people like Michael Twitty, who has an incredible book called The Cooking Gene that I'm still working my way through because it's actually, it's very, <laughs> at times philosophical, also very historical, but it's about African-American relationships to food, Mm. given our particular history in America, and also the fact that many of us don't know exactly where we come from, Mm. um, you know, in the continent of Africa. So our relationship with those flavors and, you know, African food influence is really just dependent on kind of where we grew up in America. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he's an, also an award-winning uh, chef and author. I would also add that I like to check cookbooks out from the library. And probably about two years ago, I checked out a cookbook called Soul Food Love by, it's a, it's a mother and daughter, Alice Randall and Carolyn Randall-Williams. And they talk about, well, I was thinking about it when you were talking about fried chicken and, mm-hmm. you know, the complicated past of fried chicken. And they talk about the experiences that the women going back about three generations had in kitchens and how that influenced their relationship and their family's relationship with food. But then they kind of um, extrapolated to talk about how it affected African-Americans' relationship with food. And I'll be honest, that one book did more to help me understand the concept of institutionalized racism than anything I've ever read. And I've read a lot of articles on it. I think it's a phenomenal book. And again, the vehicle is story. It's just story. Yeah. It's also a great cookbook. Um, And I wasn't even expecting the first 60 pages to be story. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I actually just wrote it down. I'm going to order it later. (laughs) It's phenomenal. Oh, it was heavy. It was heavy, but that's, that's the history, right? Well, I enjoyed this conversation so much. So I'm. This was great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you would like to share? I would just say that food can really bring people together. And it's so much more than, you know, cheese pulls and like brightly colored sundaes. And I hope, I hope that I've brought a little of that to this episode. 
You absolutely have. I definitely want people to follow you. So can you give us all the information on how they can do that? Mm -hmm. So on Instagram, it's just at Feed the Malik. And then my website is feedthemalik.com. And so you can find me in either place. I, I really do just like try to keep it fun and not preachy. You know, I try to keep it honest and I want everyone to feel like they learned something and they got something valuable. So yeah, I hope to see you guys online. I'm the queen of making friends on the internet. So if you want to shoot me a DM, if you want to like ask me a question, I will answer you. <laughs> and, and in love my it. world, that's totally normal. So I'm here. Love it. Love it. Love it. Well, I'm so glad I came across yours. I've learned a lot um, and I'm looking forward to learning more. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you again, Anella. Links to all of the places you can find Anella, as well as links to the books we discussed, and of course, her recipe for maximalist mushroom toast, which really is a symphony of textures and deep, earthy, herby flavors, are all posted on thestoriedrecipe.com. Next week, Selena comes to us from the French countryside, where the air smells like lilacs. She shares about growing up on a quiet farm near a river in Switzerland, leaving that life, and returning back to the same life, but this time in France, where she hosts culinary retreats for weary souls. Subscribe now to get that episode and all the other great things coming in May. And as always, every single share and every review means the world to me personally. Thank you and have a great week, my friends.